Cabaret on the Couch is a Little Arrogance production. inside with me between the the control freak <laughs> I was saying a control freak in remission the control freak and the lunatic and I think when I was younger I was always frightened that I would like the wind would stop and I would live in one I'd either be the drinking too much staying out all night complete party lunatic or I'd be the monastic nun who had no fun and didn't step outside her Today I'd like to welcome to the couch actress, writer, director and internationally renowned cabaret performer who has appeared in the West End and off-Broadway with Julie Madley Deeply, fascinating Aida, La Soiree and Olivier award-winning improvisation group The Showstoppers. Welcome to the couch, Sarah Louise Young. Hi Sarah, how are you? I'm great, thank you. I was just like, the, I'm giving myself a round of applause, which is what all good compares do, don't they? <laughs> Announcing yourself off stage. I'm lovely. In these crazy, insane times, I, I've got sunlight streaming through my window and um, I have water and I have you, so we're good. How is the lockdown going for you? Well, I feel immensely fortunate that I actually feel very grateful for being creative because I think I'm, I would be going out of my mind otherwise. I mean, financially for everyone who's self-employed, it's a huge stress and we're still waiting to find out what's going to happen. But there are so many amazing people out there. You know, I think of all the people, all the key workers, all the NHS, you know, we're very fortunate that in a sense, the greatest duty we can do for our, our nation is to stay home. Um, <laughs> but I just, there's the volunteer scheme as well which I gather if you can't leave your house, you can now phone in, you can do support work and checking in on people. So there's quite a lot of other things that you can do as well. Fortunately, I like my partner very much, so we're not killing each other. And he's a writer, so I mean, and weirdly for him, he can't see his kids. But other than that, and obviously just being careful about going outside, for him, it's just sort of business as usual in terms of writing. But he had a film that was supposed to be being made just before this happened, and that's obviously stopped, so. It's a, it's a very strange, strange time, but it's also weirdly unifying, as I'm sure everybody's saying. It's, it's the one thing that the entire world is going through at the same time. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I do think it's quite interesting with all the creatives and performers at the moment with that whole idea about it being business as usual. You know, some of us, I think, are sitting at home doing our day-to-day -day rehearsing and creating new things. And, of course, there's been the Twitter and, and the Instagram just overload of you know, all this content happening. But at the same time, it's like, well, you know, we're rehearsing, we're doing the same thing. It's quite easy to forget that, you know, this is all going on. I know for me, I went for my government sanctioned walk earlier today and just turned around because I was having such a lovely time and the sun was shining. And I thought, I said to my husband, um, let's pop into the swan and have a beer. And then I went, oh, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. No, we can't do that. It is definitely an invitation to readdress your life and see what comes to the surface like what things actually really matter to you what are the things that you think gosh I've got to get my exercise or we're eating so much better I mean I'm almost ashamed to say it because normally like there's so many performers I'm never home mm. so even the idea I haven't become a 1950s housewife but I have cooked a lot more than I usually do because normally you know you're coming in at one o'clock in the morning you just make something easy but actually like yesterday I found myself saying why do we have a, a, a jar of carbonara I should make carbonara I mean I didn't but I did put <laughs> some um, so absolutely and also this luxury to work on one thing at a time because again like so many people who make their own work you've always got about five or six projects on the go 
And weirdly, I think for me, that the, like the ukulele I've been teaching myself is partly just to annoy my neighbours and partly <laughs> because I wanted something that wasn't necessarily for work, something that was creative just for fun, because uh, all of my art gets channeled into how are we going to market it how are we going to put it on the stage who's going to come and that's important and I love doing it otherwise I wouldn't do it but I thought actually it's quite nice to do something just for the joy of of writing and getting that little tap switched on which mm. has been a bit lately absolutely so have you found that it's been an easy transition or has it has it been difficult for you how have you managed to balance I think the main difference is normally I have allocated my diary for the next sort of month. Like I can tell you half an hour a day what I'm doing. I, my biggest, this is my four color biro <laughs> and I've branched out into different colors, but normally it's um, red for the time, black for the information, green for nice things like birthdays. And uh, we don't use blue because it clashes with the other colors. Um, but my diary is absolutely color coordinated. So weirdly, I feel like this is, this is probably the most relaxed I've been for a, a long time. And it's really making me, not want to over plan I mean I always have an idea the night before okay tomorrow I'm going to work on this project and obviously if you've got meetings and you know work meetings production meetings writing meetings are still going ahead but it's interesting to observe in yourself what you need and I was so regimented about things when I was younger I actually if I find myself getting too tied down to the way some too too trying to control too much I sometimes need to take a step back from that so for some people going okay eight to nine is my yoga and nine to ten is my brisk walk around the block and ten to eleven and if I stick if I'm if I'm slave to that then it doesn't allow for unexpected chaos or suddenly having an idea for a song or a friend who needs to talk to you and you have to absorb that time into your diary so Control is great as I think a framework is great as long as you allow you allow the uncertainty and you allow the un unexpected. And actually, I think that's also a great way. I think improvisation has taught me a lot, you know, that you can have structure and you can have an aim. But as soon as you relax, I think a bit like cotton wool, you know, when you try and pull cotton wool and it doesn't work. And then when you just surrender a little and relax into it, suddenly it, it pulls. So I, I have a wrestle inside with me between the, the control freak <laughs> I was saying I'm a control freak in remission, the control freak and the lunatic. And I think when I was younger, I was always frightened that I would, like the wind would stop and I would live in one. I'd either be the drinking too much, staying out all night, complete party lunatic, or I'd be the monastic nun who had no fun and didn't step outside her front door. And actually there's a, the balance between those two things is, is the sweet spot. Yeah. And knowing that sometimes you need to go to one extreme like if I do the Edinburgh Fringe, I don't drink for the month and that's not a hardship. But I know some people go, what, you don't drink for a month? How is that possible? But that's the headspace I need to be in to get through that marathon. But then I come back and <laughs> drink solidly for a week. <laughs> is this a new thing for you, going to find some balance in Edinburgh? Uh, I've been doing a more balanced Edinburgh, I would say, for about the last 15 years. Uh, that what turned me actually in my early 20s was my first professional job and I went to Edinburgh with a wonderful theatre company called Tall Stories. They're the, the team behind the Gruffalo. Their, their work is amazing. And we were doing Snow White and Olivia won't mind me telling the story because every time I see her, I apologize. And she's like, Sarah, it's over 20 years ago. You have to stop apologizing. Um, but Snow White was enjoying the fact that she had a morning show and then the rest of the day to party. And one morning she just called me in after the show and she said, um, she said, where's, where's Snowy? And I, we, Snowy is what we used to call Snow White. And I said, what do, you, what do you mean? And she said, well, 
she's not really Snow White anymore. She's kind of off-white. <laughs> and I was absolutely heartbroken because I hadn't realised. And then on I just, yeah, booze and booze and work. No. Yeah. <laughs> not great for the voice either. Yeah, it's a hard one, isn't it? Because, you know, most of cabaret and stand-up and all of this performance is so linked to drinking and fun and it just is not helpful for a singer at all to be doing any of that. Mm. Mm. It's, I think it's one of the things I love about cabaret is that you get these different strands feeding into it. You get people who've come from theatre like me, people who come from performance art or from circus or from burlesque or from even like the fetish scene and the expectation of like the professional working world is very different for different people and um, I know we're going to talk a bit about voice loss later on, but mm. but before I kind of started looking after, well, I was always looking after my voice, but I was usually the sober one backstage. But I know performers who feel they can't perform without having a drink. And mm. I, for me, it's it's an enemy to to my diction and my memory, if nothing else. So I, for me, I would be terrified having a drink and going on stage. It just mm. doesn't. But I know other people who, and also I don't think anyone's ever as funny as they think they are. Yeah. <laughs> oh, England, you broke a heart when you first voted to depart. But before you off and pack, one thing, we want our language back. Oh, England, you went your way. For this exit, you will pay. Without French letters, you'll be lost. It's time for you to count the cost. No, you can't have joie de vivre without le français. You lose yourself without a cul-de-sac. There is no fees without champagne. So you can gladly keep your rain. We're taking all our French words back. No, you cannot drive a car without a chauffeur. There's no déjà vu without déjà vu. What's sex without its lingerie? Piers Morgan without his toupee. We really feel miserable for you. Oh, England, you're such a fool. Did they teach you nothing at school? With politics, you've been risque. For Brexit is just an entree. Yes, England, this is the start of picking allies a la carte. Soon the whole world will turn on you. It isn't nice, but it is true. Cause you... Cannot rendezvous without le français. Oh, so many things that you will sorely miss. Like etiquette and ambulance. Without us, you don't stand a chance. You'll die without a life-saving French kiss. Key change! No, you can't have mariage without fiancé. Without us, your souffle will never rise. Don't bother to RSVP. We buggered off for après ski. You didn't get an invite, Kel, surprise. Your cheese board will be blue without Rockford and Camembert. When you can't find the menu, you won't because it isn't there. When you smell a faint regret, instead of fine order cologne, you, you only have, have yourself to blame for dining all alone. No, you. 
mode without le français. You'll have to stuff it all off one big plate. Alas, there will be no encore. Now that you've bolted your back door for a referendum, you will have to wait. And if you want our bel esprit, I'm sorry, darling, c'est la vie. You should have voted, stay, it is too late. Yes, you should have voted, stay, it is too late. You mentioned that you come from a theatre background because cabaret, as you say, is very interesting. Lots of people come in from different areas and find themselves in the world of cabaret, which isn't tassels on boobs alone. How did you find your way into the world of cabaret? Like many things in my life, it is the, the fault of one of my best friends who uh, is his, his called Paulus, although when I knew him, he was Paul Martin. And we met when we were 13 and became friends. So we've now known each other over 25 years. And I'm directing, currently directing his show about uh, Victoria Wood called Looking for My Friend. And he had been a child actor. So he was much more switched on to the whole kind of world of performance. And I sat in his bedroom and he played me fascinating Aida songs years before I ever ended up working with them. And he played me Victoria Wood. And he was so passionate about performing. And in the making of my new show, I found all my old cassettes and I've been uploading them onto USPs and just found these awful, <laughs> beautiful, awful songs before his voice had broken as well. So he always took the soprano um, line. And he just got me into performing when we were kids and he would put on these variety shows and we would perform in them. So I think that idea of connection with an audience and aliveness with an audience was happening, you know, 14, 15, 16. And then we both, I went to university to read drama and he went to drama school and we met at the end of it. And he wanted to put on a show where he was gonna host as a drag queen called Trinity Million and me and Dusty Limits and Michael Rulston and a lot of people that are still working together now, we all started doing these shows together. And it was, I mean, I thought I was a serious singer. I would do serious songs. And then I realized I was bombing and realized that it was much better to do comedy. And then I did comedy as myself. And I, when I was nervous, this kind of really brusque school mom, horrible character would come out and I hated who I was on stage. So then I went, oh God, I need some way to, to get through this. So that's when I started doing characters. So it was a real organic process of wanting to get on the stage, knowing we could just hire a room and shove it on and then discovering some, like when stuff started to go wrong in the moment and the beauty of that and, that you could have an idea in the morning and then by the evening you were putting it on the stage, which I absolutely love. So it was never a plan, never a plan. And now it's obviously a huge, huge part of my life. Obviously you've been writing songs as well for, for a very long time and you're one half of the duo uh, Ralston and Young. And you mentioned that you uh, had grown up with Michael as well. Yeah, I met him in my early twenties and he would play for us on the barge and then like a lot of people, I'd started off just writing parodies and writing, changing the lyrics to things. And I'd done a run of news review, which is a great kind of um, uh, apprenticeship for that, for that craft. And then I just suddenly wanted to write songs and I asked Michael and I didn't think he'd say yes, because he was so in demand, he's still in demand. And we did a show together, which I would, um, I would with hand on heart say uh, it was pretty bad. Um, called Confessions of a Paralyzed Porn Star. And, and we, we literally wrote Great all the titles. songs for it. Well, it was the best thing about it, unfortunately. Um, we, and I lost 8,000 pounds and it was terribly, terribly painful. But I learned so much. And we literally wrote all of those songs in about two months. So we, we, we did an apprenticeship of songwriting. And by the end of that Edinburgh, 
I'd learned so much and I think about two of the songs I kind of hung on to and then had three years off to sort of lick my wounds and earn some money and then came back with Cabaret Hall. So he's been my writing partner pretty much since 2006. And it's really interesting now not being, I mean, we've both gone and done other things, but I have written with other people, but the songs I've been doing recently, I've been writing on my own. And I'm, I sort of have his voice in my head because he'd be going, oh, go on, go to a different chord, do something more interesting. He's very good at pushing me out of the obvious. But because I am attached to my ukulele, for which I can only play about five chords, <laughs> and because I'm writing stuff to go online, I think people's attention span is a lot shorter. So when I, if I, it's not really, it's not your question, I've gone off on a tangent, but That's if fine. I were writing Michael, we'd be much more crafting a story. There'd probably be a really interesting intro that would sort of make you think, well, oh, I wonder what this song's going to be about. But I've been very aware that I've had to hit the ground running with these songs and try not to make them longer than about two minutes. Because as you said, there's so much stuff online. Everybody's just kind of overwhelmed with it. Mm. Um, and then, and then doing, doing Showstopper, doing this improvised musical, that also was not something that was planned. I'm a late onset improviser. I only started doing it when I was about 34. And that's helped the songwriting because in that you have to conceive of a need for song. And if you're in a narrative scenario, you know, we only sing when we really feel something. So we've, we've written a musical, which is the first time we've written something like for 10 other performers. And that's really interesting where the song is so connected to plot because in Cabri, of course, you can slightly skew your text. You know, you can, we all know how to segue from one song to the other. You can, you can make a link that works, but these have to not just serve the plot, but go deeper. They have to serve a, they have to serve the scene that comes before. It's like, um, it's like the diamond, how it's embedded into the ring. Mm. And it's easy to keep rewriting the, embed, the embedding. But I was like, it's been the biggest process of sort of, each time you make a change to the script, I keep coming back to the idea of Jenga. You know, you make one change and suddenly the whole thing has restructured itself. And mm. you keep having to go like with a comb back to the beginning of the script and go through again and again. And you hit these kind of, so that's the thing I think Michael and I've learned most over the last few years is to throw away and not be too precious. Mm. And we've written, we've written entire songs that have been gateways to the right song. And I think that's, you sort of, we have a little ceremonial emotional <laughs> vigil for the, mis for the mourn songs. We didn't mention the name of that. It's called Maxa, the most assassinated woman in the world. And it is uh, set in the French horror theater, the Grand Guignol in 1920s. And Michael and I have been working on it for some time. We spent many, many, many years on the road touring one show and then writing another on the train and borrowing pianos and sitting in hallways writing while we wait to go on stage. Uh, we did a first workshop at Wilton's Music Hall and we were just about to try and workshop and obviously this has all happened so it'll be a little bit up in the air. Uh, but we, we, I'm so in love with it and I'm in love with it. Maxa was a real person. She was dubbed the most assassinated woman in the world. She was apparently killed 10,000 times on stage and um, just a great, a great character and a proper kind of dark character. And there's not an awful lot known about her. Uh, I've spent years reading everything in French and the wonderful Christine Beauville, who is a beautiful interpreter of French chanson, translated a book for me because she's also a French expert. It may be a passion project that sort of will be, you know, a, a collector's item in our, in our repertoire, but um, I love it and I'd love to see it happen. And seeing 10 performers and hearing them sing your songs was just like mind blowing, mind blowing. And we have a wonderful director called Jan Dunn who is just bringing the whole thing to life. So we need a lot of money and mm. a lot of time, which so we'll see what happens, but yeah, we've worked very hard on it. Mm. Well, I mean, listeners, you can donate. There is a link 
on my website <laughs> and in no, the, I need um, that money to eat. <laughs> Um, yes, but you know, if you know someone wants to just throw a few grand in there for the development of this musical as well, you know, feel free, guys, feel free. They're amazing writers, and I know that that was picked to be part of the Beam Festival. The first one, yeah, the first one, which was great. And we literally had a concept and one song, mm. and there was so much interest, which was fantastic. So, but you know, music, the, the UK music scene writing is amazing. It's amazing. There's so many good writers out there and so many good musicals. And there are some brilliant, you know, supporters and advocates of that. Katie Lipson does this thing called pa uh, Page to Stage. And um, um, Adam, oh, Adam Lenson. Lenson, yeah, sorry. That's this wonderful signal. Mm. And there's so much. And obviously, you've done the book, Lyric and Music. Mm -hmm. Book, course, music, and lyrics, and yeah. Yeah, Mercury music and everything. And it's, it's, I mean, we, I still feel like a bit of an imposter just because we haven't, you know, had our first musical put on. But there's some great stuff out there. It's a very exciting time. So I think there's, there's musical theatre in this country, as long as people can afford to get in the spaces, is in a very healthy, healthy state. Mm. When you write a song, do you start with the hook? Do you start with a rhyme? Do you start with a concept? Do you start with a tune? How does it work for you? Some people go into it quite differently, don't they? Yeah, it, it depends on the song. But um, when Michael and I, Michael and I have changed the way, we used to write very much separately. I would do the words and he'd do the music. And then over time, as we learned to trust each other, and because it's always, you're in a very vulnerable position when you share something, even if it's just a little tentative idea. And we'd work more side by side. And we might start with what he calls the cry of the song. Like, what's the heart? What's the beef? What's the real, what's the real thing that you're saying? And then work backwards from that. So if you know, you know, if I can't live if living is without you, if that's your cry, then you work backwards and think what's the most interesting journey to get to that point and especially with a comedy song and so sometimes it's the cry sometimes it is just the hook i have a song called please don't hand me your baby and the hook uh your baby is ugly i hardly know i hardly know where to begin your baby is ugly your baby is ugly as sin and that just landed in my head and i thought oh that's too that's too funny not to use and then you try and work out the landscape around it Cause your baby is ugly, your baby is ugly He's covered in 
construction work and then some songs come to you completely fully formed and you're like wow where did that come from and others we have a song called I'm fine which is I'm really fond of but it took us so long we kept we kept trying and then going away and then coming back again because it was a sort of it was like a game of Jenga and every time we thought we had one bit right something else fell out mm. um, so each song is its own entity well and sometimes you think you're writing one song and then so the, the song I always use as an example of why Michael is one of the reasons why he's such a great writing partner for me is called The Letter. And I thought we were writing a simple song about procrastination. And then I was, I was, it was done. It was finished. I was really happy with it. I get very impatient with myself. And he said, yeah, but what is that? It's like this, this woman's not posting a letter and she finds a whole bunch of other things to do instead of posting the letter. Ha ha. We've all been there. And he said, but what if the letter, what is the letter? What if the letter was really meaningful? And I was like, oh, it's, not, it's just a letter, Michael. Shut up. It's just a letter. <laughs> you know, but what if what if it was like divorce papers and I'm like oh oh okay so now this song, and that song ended up being one of my favorites and it's got much more heart in it and you know it starts as a comedy song and by the end of it it's really really emotional so that song decided it wanted to be well Michael decided we <laughs> <laughs> needed to be something else yeah and he's really used to me going no no well yeah well oh maybe Oh, all right then. And then, you know, it's just fear, fear and lethargy. Sometimes you want to just like go, okay, that's done. And then you're like, no, there's a little bit more. Come on. There's another song in there. The longer you, you write songs, the harder it is because you've, you've done some of the obvious things. You've, you've explored certain rhyming schemes and you kind of feel like, even though other people wouldn't mind you doing the same thing again, you think, no, 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 we've done that. We've done that. Yeah. We can't use that. We can't use that joke. We use that. We use that to note movement in another song <laughs> <laughs> i know memory is a terrible thing as well i think i wrote a song and i was like did i just copy someone else's song there without realizing it and i took it into class and i thought someone will tell me someone will tell me and i just copied the end of i feel pretty from my family oh, <laughs> you're allowed six notes aren't you 
But new music, you are writing um, a new show, which was supposed to premiere this year, which may still be premiering this year. And I know that you can't tell us the title of it, but can you say anything about it without having to kill me afterwards? I, I can. And I should mention, the only reason why we can't mention the title is that the specific venue has a different release date from some of the other venues. So, But it's, it's a new piece and it's a theatre piece rather than a cabaret piece, although... Um, it, it has within it elements of cabaret and physical theatre, and it is about voice loss, both uh, metaphorical and actual. And it's a piece I've wanted to make for a long time. I had vocal surgery about five and a half years ago, and I wanted there to be enough distance between that and recovery. And also because the climate has changed so much. Um, I think when Adele, the um, pop singer, came out about having vocal surgery, she did such a wonderful service to performers to be honest about that because it's something certainly after my surgery I was you know absolutely categorically don't tell anyone don't tell your casting directors just they will consider you damaged goods and I, I got really angry that you know if an athlete sprains their ankle you know we go oh well there you are that's an occupational hazard that's fine it happens they're not a bad athlete mm. but for some reason singers are considered uh unreliable, damaged goods, dangerous, a liability, you know, or they must have brought it on themselves. And the fact is, even if they had, <laughs> it's still nothing to be ashamed of. Yeah, and um, like an athlete can fall down the stairs because they've been drinking too much and still. <laughs> that's, that's very true. <laughs> um, so I wanted to make the piece and I, uh, last Edinburgh, I did a cabaret brunch, which was inspired by the lovely Ali McGregor, who when she's been in Edinburgh has always gathered people together. And I thought, well, Ali's not here this year, but I, it's such a nice thing to do because as you know, we are creatures of the night. Um, I'm a reluctant creature of the night. I'm actually a morning person that's been dragged kicking and screaming into a nighttime career. <laughs> um, and um, so I was chatting about it with various friends and I said, I'm thinking of making this show. And across the board, there was just this wonderful kind of attitude about it. Yes, yes, please make that show. Please talk about it because... And then the other reaction when I tell friends of mine, I was talking to a singer the other day about it. And as I was telling her the idea, she just put her hand on her throat and went, oh, that's, yeah, that's wonderful. Great, that's a really good idea. <laughs> just like the horror, <laughs> the horror. So yeah, so it's, and I'm, I'm, I'm loving it. It's a solo piece and it's, um, it's, a re it's, it's very personal. And I'm always, uh, I'm always asking of any piece of art, why should I care? And why is this person's story valuable? So the hope is that within that story, even though I'm a singer, there is a universal story being told about where our voices come from, how we absorb culture, family, society, the messages, and really that um, uh, we all have our own favorite Jungian analyst. Mine is James Hollis. <laughs> and he talks about having a long overdue appointment with yourself, that there's a, in the first half of your life, you're trying to work out who you are in the context of your world and your society. And in the second half of your life, you start to take responsibility for who you are. And if you don't listen to the little tap on your shoulder, at a certain point, it will come and bite you on the ass and say, you're not listening. <laughs> I'm going to make you lose your voice. <laughs> but this is definitely the first time of using my own story and it being, it being so meaningful. And I'm a big believer that therapy belongs in the therapy room and you don't bring anything to the stage unless you're ready to share it. So I felt like, you know, it, I, I, I'm perceived as a cabaret performer and I changed my Twitter actually from cabaret whore to sly theater maker because 
I love cabaret, but I was finding every time I popped up in a theater piece, I'd get the cabaret performer, Sarah Lou Zhang, and I was thinking, ah, I think I just want to be a performer. I don't want to be, mm. it felt like the label was limiting. And I struggled for a long time to really value the work I made myself, because I think there was an old version of what my life was supposed to look like that involved playing Hedda Gabler at the National Theater. Mm. And I felt like the work I made myself was a consolation prize. And really, it's relatively recently that, you know, other people will say, oh, you're so lucky you can make work. You're so lucky. I wish I could. And you think, oh, that's so strange. Mm. And then I also know that I would be bored out of my skull if I were the sort of 50th person to play a part in the West End. And again, no, no disrespect to that. I have friends who've done the same show for three years and they still are in love with it. And I know mm. that's not their brain works. And I get bored. And there's a, as you know, as a writer, there's a, there's a wonderful double satisfaction of an audience responding to your work when you've written it and you've performed it. Mm. But I always feel more exposed as a writer than I do as a, as a performer. Absolutely. I think um, I'm the same on that boat. You mm. know, I think it's probably something that we've been used to singing other people's work earlier. Yeah. You know, we were, we were, I'm sure you were singing, you know, as a toddler and, you know, we weren't writing then. Well, maybe we were. You know, but I didn't write any of it down, did you? I do have I did write a great song called There's a Moo Cow in the Field, Moo I ask your dance if I may, Moo I think I was 10, but I did co-write it with my friend Charlie, so I should credit <laughs> Good on you, Charlie. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned that you feel like an imposter, and this is a word that's been uh, thrown around quite a lot recently in my world, the imposter syndrome. And uh, as we're talking about balance, I wondered, uh, how do you balance the imposter in your mind going that's shit and the other side of you that's going that's fucking amazing because I think there's a lot of that that happens with artists doesn't it it's like one moment it's absolute crap and then another moment it's 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 like oh you you, you feel like you're, you're the best thing in the world which is necessary I think for the arts how do you balance that well it's interesting as you were asking the question you positioned them either side of your head and I think recognizing that they are they are valuable voices and they both need to be listened to and it's identifying them as separate voices I think um a friend of mine came up with this great idea of if you think in your head if you, that you have your 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 dreamer your critic and your realist and I'm sure this is not a new concept but your dreamer comes up with the idea and they're only allowed to talk to the realist they're not allowed to talk to the critic so the realist you know maybe the dreamer says I want there to be a theater on the moon and the realist says okay that's great uh, how, how can we make that happen? Rather than letting the critic go, that's a terrible idea, that'll never happen. But the realist can talk to the critic. So there are sort of, there are times for allowing the crazy mad dream to unfold. And there are times for the realist to go, okay, so logistically, how much money do we need to make that happen? And then the voice that's the critic sometimes is a great spur on to make the work. Sometimes if the critic, I mean, I, I've had so many times where Getting feedback is super important. And, and when we first started making shows, you used to get everybody's opinion. And then you realize that you don't need everybody's opinion. You need your own opinion and a strong sense of sharing the work before it's ready and getting your own feel. Um, and now I ask like literally six or seven select people to come and give specific feedback. But I remember this, um, I did the first ever gig I ever did with my French character, who's literally been my bread and butter for the last 10 years. And this guy said, I really love the show, but I didn't like the French character because I don't speak French. So it didn't work for me. I think you should drop her. <laughs> and had I listened to that one voice, 
I would not be doing what I'm doing. Um, so yeah, how do you reconcile those things? I think an awareness of when they are happening, when they are coming, is there anything that is valuable in what they're saying? Because sometimes the critic might just be saying, or, or, you know, have you really gone as far with this? So you were saying, you know, maybe the second, maybe there's another lyric behind that. Is it possible you've just done that because it's easy? Are you tired? Uh, my friend is a wonderful, wonderful mother and she has a 16 year old boy. And she says, uh, sometimes I ask him to halt and halt is, are you hungry? Are you angry? Are you lonely? Are you tired? And so sometimes the critic is there because it wants to be fed or is tired or you haven't chatted to it recently. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a beautiful I idea. I love that. Yeah. So I think sometimes the voices are valuable because they make you interrogate what you're doing. But as I said, I think I mentioned fear and fear and lethargy, my mm. two sort of, you know, that can really stranglehold you. It's also okay. I think you've got to compost. You've got to have time when you're just absorbing things. And especially now when everybody seems to be making something, it, it can feel like, oh my God, I'm not writing a novel. You know, it's also okay just to be still, just to exist. We are meant to be human beings, not human doings. I love that. I have my own self-help podcast. I, I know, no, I love it. <laughs> Here, I should be lying down on this couch. <laughs> now tell me your problems, Nikki. Yeah. Oh, you don't want to hear about them. I'm stuck I in the house. Um, I'm only allowed out for an hour a day. Um, yeah, very naughty along with the rest of the world. I know. All of us humans have been very, very naughty. Um, <laughs> I think that's a beautiful place to, to end. We... Um, I put this podcast together uh, to raise funds for artists and uh, charities of the artist's choice. So there is a donate button wherever you're listening to this. I'm sure there's a link that will take you back to the website or over to um, any of the Instagrams and Twitters, hashtag Cabaret on the Couch. Your charity is uh, at Mind, isn't it? Mm. Listen to me just putting a Twitter handle on everything. It's not at Mind, it's Mine. It could be. <laughs> mine. <laughs> We're going to um, ask the listeners to donate to Mind. Is there anything that you wanted to say about that charity? It's it, over the last few years, the conversation around mental health has obviously widened up, which is fantastic. And I'm I'm sure I'm not alone. That many people in my life have been affected by mental health issues, and some of those people are no longer with us, very sadly, and some people are. And so there are so many amazing charities doing incredible work. And especially now, you know, I mean, everybody needs our support, but I think it's, there is the openness about it is something that I wish had been around a few years ago. So I really just want to support the, the ongoing conversation and the support because a lot of people who need it are isolated from their families. And there are so many brilliant services that they provide. So yeah, I was very torn between them and many others. Mm. I'm I'm currently growing my hair for a wig to give to the Little Princess Trust. Oh so <laughs> this is why I have crazy hair. So they were also going to be one of my other. My, I have to do it before I go grey. I've got little grey hairs in there. They don't want to, <laughs> no seven-year-old child wants grey hairs in her wig. Oh, well, then so, I'm ruined. I can't do it. So yes. So mind, yes, mental health is a huge issue and we should all be aware of it. And I hope that everybody now is taking care of their mental health. I think one thing that's been quite brilliant about this whole crisis at the moment is that even the government are talking about it. They're talking about mindfulness mm -hmm. and they're reminding people, these are the things that you need to do in order to keep yourself mentally well. And, and that conversation is just so important, particularly now considering that uh, many of us might be isolated on our own 
and just on that subject if anyone's listening please call your friends especially if they're on their own use the internet use the zoom use the skype use the facetime we've got the tools do it check in on people and make sure that they're not you know being sad on their own and not just saying that they're fine because i think that's a huge thing with mental health as well isn't it people could just Mm. say they're fine they don't want to admit that they're feeling feeling badly or they're feeling anxious or they're feeling scared it's okay to feel scared it's okay to feel anxious Mm. and talk about it because it's it's much better if you do it's very human that's mm. the my partner often says to me you know i'll come to him and i'll be in a distress about something i'll go oh are you being human again <laughs> i'm like oh yeah mm. human. Okay. <laughs> mm. um well you beautiful human would you like to sing us your brand new song please okay so you have to be super um all the disclaimers because <laughs> literally i've I've been playing the ukulele for about five days, and that doesn't mean non-stop for five days, obviously. And I had my first Zoom lesson with the wonderful Tricity Vogue, who um, gave me a little bit of a, a, a technique on strumming. Um, so this song involves three chords, <laughs> one of which I learned this morning. So the challenge will be, I just need to make sure to get into the song. Right, we're gonna see if we can do it. Um, so this is a song uh, which I wrote very quickly. Uh, the challenge with the ukulele songs, they have to be short, they have to be quick, they have to get to the point and try to be connected to the world that we are currently living in. So this song is called If You Love Me, Keep Your Distance uh, <laughs> and is dedicated to uh, anyone currently cohabiting. And the joy of this podcast hopefully means uh, if it goes wrong, I can start again. <laughs> if you love me, keep your distance. You want me stay away? Oh yeah, I've now remembered. I literally because I've just written it. Yeah, yeah, gonna be great. This is all the all the the great. Okay, right. (laughs) If you let me keep your distance, if you want me stay away, and if you're needing some assistance, I can text you some foreplay. If you let me, you can zoom me. I'll even turn the volume on. I might let you back and front room me. Two meter distance or I'm gone. Baby, you're so hot. But I don't want what you've got. If you're out of sight, we can make it through the night. If you love me, write a letter, slip it underneath the door. The dirtier the words, the better, but sanitize your hands before. Then sanitize the bedroom floor. When you're not here, I want you more. Tomorrow, let's try semaphore. Oh, thank you so much. Um, So listeners, again, I just want to say um, artists are having a, you know, really tricky time at the moment. Uh, You have lots of shows and gigs booked up. 
that uh, have all been cancelled and everybody knows about that. So please click on the link, donate a drink worth of something or, you know, more if you'd like to, and then uh, see if you can donate to the charities as well. Thank you so much, Sarah Louise Young, for having a chat with me. You've made my day. It's ah. so nice having chats with everybody at the moment. So um, well, that's good. We should do, we should do um, uh, a cabaret on the couch cabaret when it's done, we should get together and get a venue with a big couch and all of your guests. Wait till Ruben's over. Cabaret, we should yes. do a we could do a reunion cabaret podcast. On the couch, cabaret. Come to the cabaret on the couch. Cabaret on the couch. Cabaret on the couch is a little arrogance production.